Now, I want to show you something which may be helpful. Just We've leapt back into Romans halfway through, and I thought a bit quick overview might be helpful. Um, it might not be, but let's try just quickly. I'm suggesting to you that the word that sort of binds Romans together is a beautiful word that we don't use often now, and it's the word righteousness. Um, as someone said to me at the door after the 8 o'clock service, the only people he's ever heard use the word righteous in, 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 in ordinary speech are African-Americans, and they'll sometimes call someone a righteous brother. And it's, it's a beautiful way to do it. It's saying they will do the right thing by you. They can be relied on. And that really is the theme of the book of Romans. There's lots of other themes wrapped around it, but righteousness. So let's have a, a quick review. I think almost all scholars and local padres think that the book divides pretty much quite clearly into four sections. Uh, the first that we've already looked at is Romans 1 to 4. Uh, the second is uh, 5 to 8. The only area I've seen a difference in is people, some people would, they want to do chapters 1 to 5 and then chapters 6, 7 and 8, but I, m- mostly it's this way. Then where we started again last week, this, the third section, Romans 9 to 11, and then the final section, 12 to 16. So just very quickly, the theme, the theme verse is clearly in Romans 1.17, where it says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it's from faith to faith. So this is the big, the big statement of the theme. And the righteousness of God is the question of, will, is God a person who you can rely on? Will he do the right thing in relationship? And it's, it's contested. You'll find if you look at your own heart, that is contested, whether or not you, you really can trust, you feel you can trust God. It was the original question of the Garden of Eden. Is God righteous? Does he speak the truth? Is he one, a person you can stay with? Now, the first four verses look at the question, basically, hopefully those, uh, we're not going to look at the other sections with as much detail. It's really looking at the question of how can a righteous God treat the unrighteous human beings, which is you and me, in a righteous way and not destroy them? It's the question that Job asks, how can a mortal man stand justified before God? So it's, that's the question it's dealing with. We're all sinful, but God has done something wonderful in Jesus to make it possible for a righteous God to treat unrighteous people as righteous. And it's all to do with the cross, as you know, and it's received by faith. So it comes out of those three of the great sort of war cries from the Reformation. It's to do with grace alone, unmerited favour for the unworthy. It's done by Christ alone, and it's received by faith alone. So it's God's grace and kindness alone, not his grace and our bit of goodness. It's all the work is done by Christ without any contribution from us, and it's received entirely just by trusting him, not by trusting him and being a jolly good little person. That flows separately. So that's the first four. Now, chapters five through eight, uh, you could actually use either freedom or newness as the great theme of that section. Um, It's about peace with God, a fresh new peace with God, a new relationship to sin, a new relationship to God's law, and a new confidence in our relationship with him. The spirit comes, no condemnation, certainty about what he's doing with us and where he's taking us. So that's the the section that we looked at end of last year. Now the section we just launched into briefly last week, and we'll look at it for a couple more weeks, is the question, well, it quite overtly questions the question, is God really being righteous? 
is what's happened to Israel or the Jewish nation, is, is God being fair and doing the right thing? Is he keeping his promise to them? So that's the section for the next few weeks. And then the last section is about how do those who've been made righteous by God, have been made okay in his eyes, how do we then live? How does it spell out into our relationships with other Christians, our relationship with people who aren't Christians, our relationship to government, relationship to taxes, relationship with people who we differ on? And the questions are, the, the big goal is that the righteous who have been made righteous with God will live towards love and unity. So they're the four headings. We'll attach the outline to the e-news if, if you'd like a copy of it. There's no particular reason why you would, but some people might, and you're welcome, we'll, we'll attach it. And hopefully you'll see. So we're in section three for the next few weeks. Okay? Thank you. Our first Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 11, and I'm reading from 25 to 30. This is Matthew chapter 11 from verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm going to bring us our second reading this morning. Um, it's from Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 28. That's Romans chapter 9, 6 to 28. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But then, shall we say, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, 
I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, my name is Ian. It's great to be with you. As you may have picked up from the little map of the book of Romans. We're back into Romans 9. Now, it's not uncommon, and people made some rude jokes when we stopped at chapter 8, saying, you're not going to do chapters 9, 10, 11, are you, scaredy cat? Uh, we were going to do it even before the big dare came through to do it. Um, but, you know, it's going to be, um, I think you'll find it interesting and challenging. It is. It does make sense. You could quite actually go, if you just read Romans 8, get to the end of verse 8, and you could start at chapter 12, verse 1, you wouldn't notice you'd lost three chapters. But God has not put them there for no reason. 3.16s are impressive verses in the Bible. The famous John 3.16. But let me read you two other famous uh, 3.16s. One is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3.16, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, etc. And I've had to remind myself, because, you know, this chapter 9, it's talking about Israel and stuff that you think doesn't at first glance think, well, this is meeting an obvious existential need. But all scripture is profitable. And if you will listen and if God will help you understand, you will find this useful. Uh, probably you'll feel it even more at the end of a couple of weeks looking at these chapters 9, 10 and 11. But the other 316 I'd like to introduce you to or remind you of is 2 Peter. It's a second letter from Peter the Apostle, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, which says this. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you 
with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So here's the Apostle Peter talking about Paul saying that his letters are scripture because he says people distort them as they do the other scriptures. They're probably talking about the Old Testament prophets. So it's a very big stamp from the Apostle Peter about his brother, the Apostle Paul. But he says there are in them some things that are difficult to understand. And I think he probably had Romans 9, 10, 11 in mind. So hope you've got your dentures in and we're going to chew our way through, through some nourishment here. The other thing just before we pray is we're dealing, I think, in this part of Romans with what has been technically called by some people a theodicy. It's a made-up word. It was, only, it was made up by a guy called Leibniz a little while back. And it's coming together of two words, theos, meaning God. The, the dissy part at the end is from the word dikeo, which is the Greek word for justice or righteousness. It's the big word in Romans. And a theodicy is when you try to justify or make sense of God's ways. When you may look at it and go, mm, that doesn't look too good. And a theodicy is when someone explains, oh, this is what God's doing. And this is the way to understand it. And Romans 9 is a bit like that, as we look at four questions that Romans raises. Three it raises quite clearly, and one I'm going to pretend is a question right at the end. The first two will be the longer of, the, of them by far, and the last two will be quicker. All right. Theodicies, difficult things to understand. Aren't you glad you got out of bed and came to church? And get that old brain working. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven... Thank you that it's just a fact that all scripture is breathed out by you. And we thank you for this wonderful letter. Uh, and we pray that this section here, 9, 10, 11, that we would receive special nourishment, special help from you as we feed together on this part of your word. Please help me to speak with clarity uh, now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we went from tragedy. No, we went from triumph to tragedy quite quickly. The end of Romans 8 is just an exulting in the magnificence. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And then chapter 9, he goes, oh, well, is that even right? Because it looks as if Israel's been cut off from the love of God. Because the love of God is in Jesus Christ, he says. And most of Israel had decided they weren't interested in Jesus the Christ. Um, of course, all the first Christians were Jews. The Apostle Paul, who writes, this was Jewish. Peter was Jewish, James is Jewish, all these guys. So, so the early Christians were all Jews, Jesus was Jewish. But as a whole, the nation of Israel, or the people of Israel scattered, not just in Israel, but all around the Mediterranean, almost down into Iraq and places like that, they as a whole said no. So the Apostle Paul would always go when he came to a new town to the synagogue first, shared with them about Jesus, but usually he didn't get very far and then was kicked out and then he would go to other places. So it looks as if maybe Israel, God's ancient people, uh, maybe have they been cut off from the love of God? And this is the concern that he has. Nothing can separate us, but what about Israel? And you heard last week the personal pain that he feels, the apostle feels about his own people. I remember uh, chatting with a Japanese lady who'd become a Christian and she felt a fair amount of pain that I didn't, I was only very much on the outside about the fact that her, her people, the Japanese people as a whole, had not been very receptive to the gospel and she felt a real sadness sometimes, tears, 
about the fact that her people uh, hadn't received. And this is, I think, what the Apostle Paul is talking about here when he talks about his great grief and anguish in his heart. And he deals with it in four questions that, um, as he looks at the question of whether or not God has been just in his treatment of them. The first question, as you heard, is in verse 6. Although he sort of turns the question so it's almost positively put. Verse 6, it's not as though God's word had, word had failed. So the question is, has God's word failed to them? Have the promises to Israel to be God's people not worked? Uh, which is significant because if God has a plan with Israel and it gets a bit hard and he just bails on it, who's to say he's not going to do that to you? You're a hard case with God as well, like I am. So how do you, what gives you a basis to be secure if it looks as if Israel's, the word to them has failed? Now he, he'll begin to answer that uh, quite quickly. So this is the question of God's promises. Are his promises, which he listed in verses 4 and 5, amongst the great blessings God had given, if God gives you a promise, you're a lucky person. You've got something real solid to build your future on. Well, that's if he's righteous. If he's a righteous God, he'll keep his promise. It's not as though God's word has failed. For not all those descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they the children of Abraham. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And as you heard it said there. Now, what he does is here he says... Hang on, you're saying maybe God has failed them, but he says actually from the very beginning, it wasn't just a question of being Abraham's descendant. And it's not a new idea he's doing to try and avoid a difficult situation. He said from the very beginning, and he goes back to the first generation, Abraham and Sarah, God promised him to be the father of many nations, and he promised that through his seed, the whole world would be blessed. I'm not aware of anywhere where he says all of your, killed, all of your kids Ancestor, you know, descendants are going to be okay, but through your descendants will come the one who will bless the whole world, which Jesus thinks is him. But immediately, Sarah, Isaac, and Ishmael, she had two, no, they had two sons. Remember, it wasn't working. Um, even when they were young and healthy, they couldn't have kids. Sarah and Abraham, uh, when they got to their 80s and 90s, it became ridiculous to keep waiting for God to keep his promise. So, Abraham thought, I'll fix this up. I'll do what was culturally appropriate. Then he had sex with one of his servant girls, Hagar. She got pregnant and had Ishmael. And there's a whole area of the world who take their descendants back there, lining to Ishmael. But God says, no, nah, the promises I'm going to make, the work on it is not going through Ishmael. Sarah will have a child, the child Isaac, which is what verses 4 and 5 talk about. It will be through Sarah who will have a son. So the line goes immediately. It's not just a question of having sort of some genetic connection to Abraham. Ishmael immediately is said, no, it's not going to go through him. God will work through his promise. He's going to go through Isaac. Isaac mar marries Rebecca. Rebecca has twins. Verse 10. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time. So this is not two mothers, which might explain the difference. This is the same woman conceived at the same moment from the same act of having and making love together, the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not according to works, but by him, of course, she was told the older will serve the younger. So there's twins inside. They're both Abraham's descendants. And yet God says, I'm not going to work through the older one. 
the older one will actually serve the younger, which is the way life should be as the youngest of five. Uh, it's good to see God has corrected that terrible social evil. But it's, it's actually quite common in the Bible that um, God will reverse the usual order. He takes the weak and makes them strong, takes the, you know, the unlikely and takes them into great things. So Jacob and Esau, and you can read about them in the book of Genesis, they're both unimpressive men. Uh, one's more an outdoor guy, the other is not so much like that, but they're both sleazebags, they're both silly, they both make terrible decisions, but God has said, I'm going to work through Jacob, the second one, and not through Esau, the first one. And they become the fathers of the nations, Israel and Edom. So God is saying from the very beginning, it's not just about being a descendant of Abraham. And this is not some late idea that Christians have made up to sort of cover a difficult thing. It was right there in the first and second generation. This is God's way of working. So he hasn't failed Israel because not all Israel is Israel, which might sound a bit strange, but it's, I guess it's a bit like saying not all Christians are Christians. I think we know how that works. So, you, know, you might have a label for it. You may have some connection with it. But not all Israel are Israel. So that, that all Israel have not accepted their Messiah doesn't mean that God's word has failed at all. It's all about, I think it's N.T. Wright used this phrase, grace, not race. It's about God's choice. Who does God choose to bless and to work through? Israel had simply muddled up the promises. And I think if you're a Christian, you'll know there are times you've done that too, where you've assumed there was a promise that something would happen, and then when it didn't happen, you get a bit cranky with God, and then someone says, where is that promise exactly? And when you go and look at it, it's not what God is saying. Like the person who said you know, uh, to a, a, a Christian minister, but the Bible says you can see that all things work together for good. And she says, I don't see it. And the, the, the said, well, the, the Bible doesn't say that. It says you can know it. It doesn't say you can see it. And a little thing like that can, be very, can, can make quite a significant difference. God never said that all Israel were going to know him and have his blessing. But the, the door is open for them. It's about grace, not race. And Jesus himself has to have this argument with people in his day, as does John, his cousin. They both have to say to Jews of their day, don't presume to say we're Abraham's descendants. That God can raise up descendants from Abraham from these stones. So it's, it's a thing that, uh, that not just the Apostle Paul makes up. So God has not broken his promise to Israel because he did never promise that all Israel was going to be caught up with the blessings of the Messiah, but although they were open to it. And then he uses a verse which, if I can say this honestly, aware of the presence of God, I, I kind of wish God hadn't spoken quite like this. I don't, I, you, know, you might want to write to the bishop. Because um, <laughs> he then uses, it's one thing to say the older will serve the younger, but then the next one says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, that's the younger of the sons, Esau I hated. Ouch. Um, what does that mean? Uh, well, it's really fairly straightforward. It's, it's um, you know, Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, it's recorded in one place, he says, you've got to love me more than you love your mother or your father or your husband or your wife. And another time Jesus says, as recorded in Luke's Gospel, you must hate your mother and your father, your husband or your wife. And they mean exactly the same thing. It is what's sometimes called a Semitic hyperbole. It's just a way that people who were Jewish often spoke in very vivid terms. When you've got to go this, and it's a way of saying, I am preferring this to that. So I'm loving that and hating that. I'm saying yes to this and no to that. 
Esau is not going to be the way that the great line of blessing will come. God blesses Esau and he has a pretty successful, happy life and his descendants went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But still, nonetheless, God has said, Jacob is the one that I love and Esau is the one I'm rejecting or hating. It's, the, it's, the way, it's a bit like when Jesus cut your hand off rather than sin. It's a very vivid, powerful way of saying, it's this, not that. That's what he's doing. So um, Andrew Vella was saying that yesterday he decided to go to a wedding here and not go to the Canberra Men's Convention. He said, you could put that as, I loved Sam and Brad's wedding. I hated the... And that, that, that's, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't use that because you don't need to, but that's what it's saying. It's saying, I'm choosing this against that. And that is what God has always been up to. So there's the first question. Does God keep his promises? Absolutely. Second question in verse 14. This is where it gets to the real hub of the matter. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God unrighteous? Is that the same word? Is God someone who does the wrong thing? Is God therefore unreliable? And you'd be foolish to trust him. It's a very serious question. Is God unjust? Look at the answer because it doesn't seem like an answer. The next verse, verse 35. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So he raised the question of God being just because he's blessing Jacob's descendants and not Esau's. And then the answer from, from uh, God is, no, no, no. I'm talking about mercy. And sometimes we, we want to wrap it on about justice and God says, no, it's not justice that you need. Now, I don't know if this story is true. Uh, in fact, I doubt it's true, but it's a good story nonetheless. Allegedly, an upper-class English woman was getting her portrait painted to go up, hanging up in one of the numerous walls, uh, in the numerous rooms they had. And she said to the painter, I want you to do me justice. And he allegedly said, lady, it's not justice that you need. What you need is mercy. <laughs> now, I'm doubtful it was actually said, because I think he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't get many jobs doing that. Um, but you get the picture. If you say, I want justice. And so he's saying, you know, if, if God is blessing people through this particular line, not that line, is that justice? And he says, no, 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 it's not a question of justice. It's a question of mercy. No one should get the blessing of God. God if God gave you what you deserve, you're all in trouble, as I am. Jacob is a scumbag. Esau is a scumbag. They're not nice boys. But God chooses to work and bless through that line, as he is completely entitled to do, and to bring blessing to the whole world eventually through his son, who's a descendant of Jacob, not of Esau. I, I, know, I knew a man. He's dead now. But he, he said once about getting forgiveness from God, which is the essential basic thing that God wants to give to us because it's your basic need. There's more that God wants to do with you than that. But that's where it starts. He said, I don't want forgiveness. I want to get from God what I deserve. And I had to say to him gently, you will go to hell then. Uh, it was only his appalling ignorance of himself and God that would make anybody, and he wasn't even outstandingly good. He was just an average Australian that didn't break enough laws to go to prison, that's all. But he wanted justice. It's the wrong category to work in. So he says, is God being unjust by choosing and blessing through something? He says, no, no, no. God can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Is that not true? Right? If, if I want to go down the street here and give $1,000, because as Andrew said, I'm filthy rich. <laughs> if I just give $1,000 to every second house, 
have I, have I been unjust to the people I didn't give the money to? No. I've been ridiculously, foolishly generous to these other ones and they may want to move house so they can get $1,000. Um, that would pay about a week's rent. But, you know, it, it's the wrong category. It may look odd. So when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he would have, they had lots of people, dead people buried near each other, like we do at cemeteries. So he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus has this amazing blessing of being brought back to life, much to his sister's joy. Can another, hang on. What about my great-grandfather? He was a really nice bloke and he's hidden some treasure somewhere. Well, that's unjust. Why haven't you raised me grandfather? And it's not a question of justice. They're all dead because they deserve to be dead. They've, they've lived, they've died, they've sinned, they're dead. There's nothing unjust in only raising one. It's mercy to Lazarus. It's the wrong category. You don't, well, the thing you don't want from God, and I don't want from God, and we don't want from God as a community, is God to give us what we deserve. I was with a bloke once and we were praying about a new archbishop in another city far, far away. And he said, God, please, please give us justice and give us a good man. And I, I hardly ever in my life said, no, Lord, please don't. But I thought there was no way in the world you could say amen to that prayer. So I had to say, no, please don't, God. Right? You don't want justice. It's the last thing you want if you know yourself and you know God. So what he's saying is it's not a question of God being just. It's God being merciful. Right? He is free in his mercy. It doesn't depend on man's desire or effort, the scripture says, but on God's mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I may display my power in you. God will do what he wants to do. Now this may be hard for us to take on board, but God is free in a way that you aren't. You are much more constricted by your DNA and the culture you've been brought up in. God is absolutely free to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And if he chooses to have mercy on someone, that's a complete, free, undeserved gift. And he's saying it comes out of him. He's not just the God who builds a salvation machine and says, jump on if you wish. He is the God who saves. He sends his son to die and he sends his spirit to open our hearts and bring us to God. It is, that is what God is doing. He is merciful. And in that, it's not a question of saying he's unjust. Now, the, second, the third question is, it's a questionable question. And it's in verse 19. One of you will say, then why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will? Now, this is a questionable question because at this point, there are all sorts of questions that, that the Bible is really happy to take an answer. People ask Jesus questions, he gives them good answers. If you ask Jesus a smart aleck, arrogant question, he won't give you an answer, he'll answer it with a question. And it seems at this point the Apostle Paul thinks this person is asking this with some level of belligerence and arrogance. How can God hold us to account if this is going on? Who can blame us for this? And his answer is, verse 20, Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? You might think, yeah, that's exactly, I'm, I'm a human being, I've got every right to talk back to God. No, you, no, you haven't, I'm sorry. Complete category error. You, you are in no position to talk back to God or to call him to account. The great C.S. Lewis has got a very short essay, which is brilliant, called God in the Dock. And he says the deep, sort of assumed position that humans have is this. I'm kind of like the judge and God is in the dock. And if he'll just give me some decent answers to my legitimate questions, I might find him innocent. And I might just give him a tick. 
instead of being scornful and full of criticism of him. And, and what Lewis says is, no, 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 you've completely lost it. This is, what, this is what sin does to your brain. You completely reverse things. He is not in the dock. You are. You are not the judge. He is. You do not determine his future. His judgment determines your future. He says, you just, you've lost your place to have a go at God and suggest that God is being, you know, he's, he's, he's muddled and how can he hold us to account? Of course he can. And he goes on and then talks about, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes or some for common use? He's saying, you want to understand the relationship between you and God? He is the potter. You are the pot. He's not ultimately answerable to you. Uh, that's all that image is trying to say. That's just not how it works. That's not how it is. You can pretend to get all indignant if you like, but the fact is you're the pot. Here's the potter. He is not answerable to you in that way at all. He will take honest questions, but if the spirit is arrogant and belligerent, um, it will find itself met by a question or just silence. He is not going to be unjust to you. You will be unjust to him in the way that you treat him and the way you speak of him. But he will not be unjust. He cannot, as, as Abraham says way back in Genesis, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And he will. No one in hell today is saying, I got a bum deal. I got the judge on a bad day. They'll all be saying, yes, this is fair. I see it. I understand it. They could have understood it earlier. So this is what he's saying. This is what God is like. It's his job. Now, friends, this is hard for us to understand, isn't it? Because I think we're used to the idea that we should be able to understand things instead of just being told, no, I'm sorry, you're out of, you're out of your jurisdiction. But it's, it's not that Christians are saying, please don't use your brain. Please don't think too much. We're saying, please think accurately. Be aware of who you are. So in yesterday's um, sermon, I used a... a, a picture I had because I'd just been down the south coast and a mosquito landed on my hand and I sort of brushed her off being you know, Mr. St. Francis <laughs> but, it, but it came back to, to take some blood so I just went bang I have been racked with guilt, no I haven't <laughs> right? but the, the gap between me and the mosquito is smaller than the gap between me and God he is not just a big you He's not just a big Superman sort of person. So the great John Wesley from some time ago said this. He said, find me a worm that can understand a human. Then I'll try and find you a human that can understand God. Now, it's just helpful to see where we stand, the pot and the potter. We, I have a, a little laptop computer that I like, and it works quite well, and we've talked about this some years back there are all sorts of programs that simply won't work on my laptop and if I try to load them into it and try to get it to do some stuff it won't do it and it'll give me some warning that something's not working now uh, lap Apple computers before I ever had one I had some friends who had one and when something would go wrong that's the, the computer would talk to them and it would tell them what had gone wrong and it would say it is not my fault and I thought I'd smash that computer <laughs> because it probably is the computer's fault. But you know, there are just things that my little computer, utterly brilliant as that technology is, 
simply can't do. There's stuff that needs to be worked on huge computers, in mainframes somewhere, whatever it is. And there's just, if you try to download a thing, try to get my computer to deal with certain problems, it can't do it. It is not because the problem isn't real or it can't be sorted somewhere else. And we've just got to see what we are. Your brain might be the largest laptop brain in the planet, but you're an idiot in all sorts of areas in terms of your capacity. That is not saying don't think. It's saying think seriously about things. This is what the Bible is saying to us, friends. Realise that he is God and you're not. Things sometimes will make sense, often do, and you've got plenty of grounds for your faith as... as um, Philip was talking about, in Jesus. Einstein's wife, his first wife, Maliva, I don't know quite how to say her name. She was a brilliant physicist and a brilliant mathematician on her own, in her own right. But um, when he launched his uh, theory of relativity on the world, and they were still together, um, she was asked, brilliant lady as she was, do you understand the theory of relativity? She responded immediately, no, but I know Albert and he can be trusted. Okay? Now that, I think that's the position we're in as Christians. There's lots we don't understand. There's lots that when we hear we think, really? That's not the way I think it should be. But just to realise, okay, can you trust the one who died on the cross for you? Can you trust the one who sent his son to die on the cross for you? Yes, his ways are not your ways. Yes, his ways are higher than yours. Or as the, one of the first Bible verses I was taught by a friend who helped me grow up as a baby, baby Christian is Deuteronomy 29, 29. And some of you will know. Does anyone know what's in Deuteronomy 29, 29? Yeah. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but what he has revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do his will. It makes a very clear distinction. Way back with Moses and Deuteronomy. There are some things God has simply not revealed to us. The secret things that belong to him. But there's much that he has revealed. Here we're told God is free in his work. He makes promises and he keeps them. His character is beyond question, full of mercy. But if you ask certain sorts of questions with a certain temperamental arrogance, you'll find that you won't get an answer because you're just standing in the wrong place. He then gives a hypothetical, what if God did this? It's a hypothetical, he can do what he wants. That's not saying it's what he's done in verses 22 and on, but it's saying what if he wanted to do that? Well, the second last thing is to look at there's two sets of statements from the prophets, one from Hosea in verse 25, or two from Hosea, sorry, and then two from Isaiah in verse 27. And they're basically saying this, they're rounding up this part of the argument. Not only has God's word not failed in the fact that many Israelites have not followed God as yet, and he'll say more about this in chapter 11, but he says actually God is, fulfill is fulfilling his promise. God has always said this would be how it would happen. There are prophecies in the, in the Old Testament saying that the, the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and rejected and that Israel, God's people, would reject him. So Hosea says this in terms of the broadening out of God's love to others. Verse uh, 25. And Hosea said, I will call them my people who are not my people. I'll call them my loved one who is not my loved one. So God is saying, those who didn't know my love, I'm going to include them in it. Right? This is what he's doing with the Gentiles, the people who aren't of the family of Abraham. And the next verse says a very similar thing. In the very place that it was said, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. So he's saying, God has always said that there would be this expansion of his love outward. 
Israel was always just sort of the root, the, sort of the root and the, the trunk of the tree, but there's always going to be much more coming. But then he then quotes Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, speaking about the way that Israel will be cut back. Verse 27. Though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Massive numbers, but only a remnant will be saved. So this is actually what God had said would happen, and that was what was happening. As I say, chapter 11, God's got other things in store for Israel, but the word of God has not failed. It's been fulfilled in the way it happened around the time of Jesus. And the last question is this. Uh, it wasn't read because we just thought it might be asking too much for us to listen for that length of time. But verse 33, verses 30 to 33 is just speaking about the fact that it is about putting our trust in the Saviour God has given rather than thinking we earn our way by our religious works. It's a very standard line in the Bible, isn't it? It's not about your religious works. It's about the work that he does that we receive the benefit from. And the last verse is this. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Chapter 10, we'll pick that up again. What it's saying here, friends, is it all comes back to the question of questions is simply the question to concern ourselves is with our relationship to the rock. God has given us a foundation stone to build our lives and our eternities on. Many will simply fall over the rock, stub their toe on the rock, find the rock offensive, think it's in the wrong place. But if you trust in the rock, you will never be humiliated and put to shame. So that's the passage here in Romans 9. It's on the question of can God be trusted? Are his promises going to be kept? No, they're going to be fulfilled even more wonderfully than we could have imagined. He is the God of the cross. I go to my dentist. I don't know what he's doing in there. Um, but I trust him. Sometimes I ask him, but there's only so much. To, even I have to shut up at some stage when they're doing that stuff in my mouth. But I just trust him. I've, I've learned he's trustworthy. I don't know what he's doing sometimes. I don't know why it costs quite as much as it does. But uh, I'm not complaining. It's a question of trust. And you can trust the God of the cross. And when you find a God or a way to explain all the things in the Bible that perhaps you mightn't like because of your culture, and you work out a nice, convenient God who agrees with you on most things or everything, you can be sure that's not God. That you think God would agree with you or me or some book you've read is just an indication that we haven't thought enough. His ways are not our ways. They are better. Right? As Jesus says, what is highly esteemed amongst men is despised before God. We have his word. We have his promises. He's righteous. We can trust him. Even though at times we have to wrestle with things uh, together with Christian friends, as the Romans did with Paul. Well, let's pray. Lord God, this is a, an unusual passage, really, from your word. But we thank you that you are the righteous God. Thank you for your patience with us when we um, at times don't trust you and trust our own impressions of how things should be. We thank you, God, that you made promises long before Jesus came and you fulfilled them in abundance when he came. Uh, help us, Lord, to rely on you, the one who is worth trusting. And we also pray that we would be righteous friends to others, that we would be dependable like you are. In Jesus' name, amen.